coming up. Nikki had left her house and came back that morning, like around five in the morning on June 6th, but then left again with all they knew was that it was an unknown, older Russian male at the time. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Tonight, loved ones remembering a Vancouver teenager killed. Police believe because she was transgender. Last month, after more than two long years, someone was finally tried for the murder of Nikki Kuhnhausen, a 17-year-old last seen alive in June of 2019. And I believe that this man took her life because she was Nikki. Ashley Korslin is a reporter at KGW and host of multiple Vault Studios podcasts, most recently The Yellow Car, which is available now. But Ashley, we're going to be talking about another big story you've been covering out near Portland, the murder of 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen. Before we get into it, tell us about Nikki. Who was she? Yeah, so Reed, as you said, Nikki was just 17 when she died. So she was a high school student. And her mom said that Nikki always wanted to be a makeup artist one day. She had her whole life ahead of her. Her friend said she wanted to be on America's Next Top Model. And Nikki was uh, transgender. And so her mom said, though, she was always confident with who she was. You know, as early as sixth grade in middle school, Nikki was confident in the person she was. She loved to wear her hair long um, and she loved makeup. And everyone described her as just a fun-loving, beautiful young teenager. She was a rainbow of light. She loved me unconditionally. She never left my side. And when she didn't answer my messages on June 6th, I knew something was wrong. This case then takes us back to 2019 when Nikki, as far as anyone knew at the time, went missing. What were the circumstances leading up to that disappearance? Yeah, so it was on June 6th of that year of 2019 that Nikki was uh, officially reported missing. And at this point, all her her mom and her friends knew is that Nikki had been staying at a friend's house that night. Um, the friend confirmed to investigators that Nikki had left her house um, and came back that morning, like around five in the morning on June 6th, but then left again with all they knew was that it was an unknown older Russian male at the time, um, and Nikki disappeared. She never came back. And so that's really all anyone knew at the point. So searches started from there, and that's where the investigation began. And then we get this six-month window where nobody knows where Nikki is. What do search efforts look like during that time? And what information, if any, are we getting about what might have happened to her? Really, at the time, we were given the information about the unknown older Russian male, and that's all we knew um, officially. Now, there was obviously a lot going on behind the scenes that detectives were not able to release publicly that could harm the investigation. Um, So the family, friends, um, people started searching. They held um, you know, events and vigils and posted flyers and used social media to really spread the word about Nikki's disappearance. But honestly, it, yeah, it was a six-month time frame when, to when Nikki went missing and to when her body was discovered. Um, we didn't know behind the scenes that police obviously were um, doing their due diligence and really using digital forensics. That was a big part of this case, checking um, Snapchat and the phone Nikki had used that night. That was their biggest clue at the time. But until a body was found, police didn't know there was even a crime. You mentioned that unfortunate discovery. Where is Nikki's body eventually discovered? And what did we learn at that point about how she had died? 
Yeah, so it was on December 7th. So yeah, roughly six months later, about an hour outside or so of Vancouver, um, a hiker found a skull in the woods. It was in a place called Larch Mountain. And so it's a really densely wooded area um, out of town, out of the way. You have to drive a ways out to get to this really rural area. And the hiker found a skull kind of down this really wooded embankment area. And detectives were called in, search and rescue crews. They all responded out to the scene and they ultimately discovered other human remains, um, jewelry, some items of clothing. They were all later um, attributed to being Nikki's belongings. And one thing investigators found that was really alarming was a set of hair extensions that they believed belonged to Nikki. Um, They found a portion of a bone, a hyoid bone, tangled in the hair. Um, The medical examiner from there determined it was Nikki Kuhnhausen's remains. And the Emmy determined that she died after being strangled. It it wasn't determined until much later, though, that she was uh, strangled by a phone charging cord. My fears and my visions and and my nightmares were true stories. And for six months, I prayed that that wasn't what was happening. And so that was the really um, just awful discovery and really unfortunate conclusion um, six months after Nikki went missing. We are going to begin tonight, though, with a tragic update just into our newsroom. Police say a Vancouver teenager missing since this summer has been found dead. Family last heard from 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen, June 6th. And it's after that point we hear about a man named David Bogdanov, who's named a person of interest. Who is David Bogdanov and what was his connection to Nikki? So David Bogdanov publicly, we didn't learn his name and much about him until that discovery of Nikki's body. But um, as we would later come to find out, detectives had focused in on David, who was 25 at the time, um, living in the Vancouver area. They had focused in on him very early on, and that's because they had gotten access, as I said earlier, to Nikki's Snapchat account. And through Snapchat, they determined that they had... um, met up the night of Nikki's disappearance, and they used Snapchat to prove that. Um, The thing that was really interesting about David Bogdanov is that he fled to Russia, where his family's from, um, shortly after the murder. So let's fast forward. Bogdanov, David comes back from Russia about six weeks later and finally responds to police in September. So this is months after detectives had been trying to reach him. Um, He does an interview. He agrees to speak with investigators Basically, all he says is he remembers meeting up with Nikki the night of June 5th um, into the early morning hours of June 6th. He says they met up, they had a sexual encounter, but then he says he learned that Nikki was transgender and told her to get out of his van. Um, He says that in his culture, in the Russian culture, homosexuality is unacceptable. And so he said he was really upset. He wanted her to get out of his van. he claims that Nikki walked away and that he never saw her again. So that was his story early on. Um, he says he went to work after that and has no idea what happened to Nikki. Um, so it, it took quite a bit of legwork to determine that was not the case. And police found out that definitely was not what happened. And from there, David Bogdanov ends up charged with the murder of Nikki Kuhnhausen. What do investigators and eventually prosecutors say as far as a motive, why did they think Bogdanov killed her? 
So the prosecutors painted a very clear picture of uh, a 20-something-year-old man who became so enraged when he discovered that Nikki was transgender, that he killed her, that he was so ashamed if his family would have found out that he had a sexual encounter with um, with Nikki being transgender, that he killed her, that he was so outraged. And that, that was the motive that they painted. Um, now, the motive that... David Bogdanov would testify in court was far different. He claimed it was self-defense. 2021 is on track to be the deadliest year of violence against transgender people in U.S. history. That's according to some data from the Human Rights Campaign and Advocacy Group. It is an alarming statistic, but it's also inspired some progress and new laws to protect transgender victims like the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act. Before this case would go to trial, a piece of legislation called the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act would be passed in Washington where this happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that now law? Yeah, so a lot of people have heard of the term the panic defense, and that has been used around the country in court cases, and um, it is permissible in certain states. And so what that does is it can be a defense where a defendant could claim um, if they had some sort of, let's say, a sexual encounter with someone who is gay or transgender, that they were not in their own in a, in their own right mind. They were became so upset at this revelation that they could not be held responsible for their actions if they committed a violent crime against that person who is transgender or gay. Um, and so in March of 2020, Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed a bill into law, um, and they called it the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act. And that would officially prevent any criminal defendant um, to ever use that so-called panic defense in their court proceeding or to try to, um, you know, avoid being uh, found guilty of a crime. You reported that Washington is one of around a dozen states that now have laws like this outlawing this legal strategy known as, as a panic defense. But that would suggest that there are dozens of states where a defendant is still allowed to use that defense. Yes, that's correct. Um, I believe Washington at this point had become the 10th state to pass this legislation at the time. Um, now, I do want to point out that we never had any indication that David Bogdanov was going to try and even use the, the quote, panic defense in his defense as part of the murder trial. Um, however, the important thing that came out of this legislation is that moving forward, no other defendant in the future in the state of Washington would be able to ever even try to use that defense. And so really, it was a, a really symbolic and important gesture, especially for the LGBTQ community, that this legislation was official and it was um, publicized and it was put out there so that judges around the state and attorneys around the state knew that this would never be a permissible defense in a courtroom in the state ever again. So when David Bogdanow's case finally goes to trial in the summer of 2021, what are the formal charges that he's facing? So when David Bogdanov goes on trial, he is facing charges of second-degree murder and one count of malicious harassment. And that, in the state of Washington, is the the official hate crime charge. So he goes on trial. Um, I want to talk about his defense here a little bit because, as I talked about, the prosecution pointed uh, painted this picture that the motive was because Nikki was transgender and that's why David killed her. 
when Bogdanov's attorneys start arguing in court, they make it very clear that this, hey, this was not because Nikki was transgender. This was a classic case of self-defense. And I think the most interesting part of the trial, perhaps, was when David Bogdanov took the stand, which you really don't get to see that very often in murder trials. A lot of people do not want to take the stand in their own defense. David was the only person who took the stand in his defense. And he got up there and told this long story about how when he determined how he discovered Nikki was transgender, he got upset. He says, I told her to get out of my van and she started to fight with me. And um, David said, I had a concealed carry permit. So I had a handgun in my car, in my van, and I was afraid for my life. Nikki went to grab the gun and he says that he thought Nikki was going to kill him and shoot him with his gun. And so he says, I had to hold her back um, as she attacked me and I grabbed a phone charge cord and put it over her shoulder. And, and this is where it gets interesting. He claims that the cord slipped up around Nikki's neck um, and he didn't realize it. And she eventually went unconscious. And um, that was his story. And the jury and the prosecution didn't buy it. And so what is ultimately the verdict in this case? What does the jury decide? It did take two full days. On the third day of deliberations, uh, the jury reached a verdict. And it, it took them a while to reach this, but the jury found him guilty on both charges. So guilty of second-degree murder and then guilty on that hate crime charge of malicious harassment. I don't know if we've heard from Nikki's family following the verdict, but I know we heard from them a little bit throughout this whole legal saga what have they had to say about this case and about how they're going to remember Nikki? Um, you know, the family hasn't done a lot of public interviews about their reaction and how they're feeling. But I know that during during the trial, during, when the verdict was read, um, friends and family all kind of let out this exclamation of a sigh of relief and um, very quiet yeses in the crowd. They felt relieved. You could just see that they, you could feel that in the air when watching this trial play out, that this was the day they had waited a long time for. It was two years later. Um, we had a pandemic in the middle of all of this. And so you'd have to imagine things were delayed and they took a while. So it was almost two years since Nikki disappeared that they would get this closure to the case. And Nikki's mom has gone on to become sort of an advocate um, for LGBTQ rights and especially to really publicize the importance of of talking about this, talking about the panic defense, talking about transgender rights and what happened to her daughter. And that's sort of the way that Lisa, Nikki's mom, is helping Nikki's legacy live on. Ashley Korslin with KGW in Portland. Thanks for bringing us this story. You bet. Thank you so much for having me here, Reed. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. For more on this story, you can head over to kgw.com. And if you're looking for more podcasts, you can head over to vaultstudios.com for a full list of our shows, including our most recent series, Strangeville, which is available now. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.